PFT Media. Yes, 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 so. yes, yes. But now we have identity with the same intro every week, which is a fantastic thing. Shut up, so Rob Ryder, Ikahan Audio. This is the Patreon. We can't do any. This is not a commercial. No, no ads on the Patreon page. No, no, no sponsored content on the Patreon page. We're just saying he does great work. We're just saying Rob Ryder does great work. Ikahan Audio.com is a fantastic uh, company. And Beckham. Paramount. I know. How the as an archivist? How the hell do you like that? Sounds... How how by getting a, a, a difficult to get librarian master's degree? I know, right? <laughs> Six years in library sciences, and then, like and then you get to archive it. Ultimate dedication <laughs> gets you to a crazy good job. Shouts, fuck. Uh, they, they they're not patrons. Shout out to our patrons though, our patreons. Do you call them Patreons on Patreon? I don't know. It's a weird they, Patreon. Be, that's such a weird... They are... I mean, they're patrons. Like, that's how... Our patrons. Yeah. Paying the monies. That's the way it works. The they're, Canonical they're, Five. They're, they're patrons. Peter the First. Yeah. Gabe the Great. <laughs> Scott the Spot. Uh, Carmelo hosts the Carmelo Mix Show. Cram it in ya. The Carmelo Mix Show. That's That should be his slogan. Yeah. Cram it in your ears. The Carmelo Mix Show. Shouts. And, of course, uh, Ron the Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Ron the Salacious. Ronda getting drunk and waking up with uh, stuff <laughs> written, written on them. Yes, uh, I, I, that stopped happening to me in my twenties. That's pretty much when I stopped drinking. Ron's out there living his best life. Yes, of course. Love the guy. Uh, and then, of course, we have Maggie, the first lady, the first lady to sign up of the Patreon. We appreciate that. Uh, the second lady happens to be my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris's mom. Uh, speaking of parents, off mic. And then there's, of course, uh, El Ray, Leon. Oh. Thank you, sir. And then Swervy Jones himself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Trey. And Trey. No. Host, repping, cooking up comedy. Yeah. People should sign up for Swervy Jones bonus episodes. Be a Jones family member. They're going to probably change the name of that to, uh, they're saying they're going to change the name of that to the Chochalizing Club. Because they cho- that's what they do. They chochalize. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of chochalizing. Yeah, I get when you When you're sober, you socialize. But when you get drinking, it's, it's chochalizing. You start chochalizing. I'm out there chochalizing. I'm not sure if I agree with that. You statement. don't. You don't like that. <laughs> it's chochalism. It's good stuff. Uh, so there you go. That's your. Is, is that nothing like socialism? It's something like it. It's a drunker version. So here we are. Uh, I said we were going to do this before, and we're doing it. History of uh, Universal Pictures. Drew mm-hmm. goes all the way back to. Have you heard the name Carl? Lam- Lamley? Carl Lamley. Don't think so. Spelled weird, too. Then again, L- I've never A- taken any sort of like history of film course or anything. Yeah, but so. when it comes to like old school film guys, he's the one who's still, there's like a statue of him somewhere out there. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow, that influential. Yeah, Carl Lamley is... Uh, did, he, did he invent something? Well, he helped start Universal pretty much. He was pretty much the guy who started Universal Studios. There are a number of people... Number of men. Let's, I mean, let me be real. Yeah, That's come on. Was. This, like, is, this is old school. This is going to be a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of, of dudes, white dudes. Saying, bunch of dudes saying <laughs> Mark and Adam and Pat got together and uh, we're like, we're starting a company, a, a picture company. But what really started when, first off, Carl Lamley was in dry goods and shit like this. Okay. Is, this is 1908. Yeah. This is what people did back in the day. And he, so people still do, Chris. 
That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Crazy Jeff Bezos will sell you anything on his website. You know, he has it all yeah. somehow. I don't know how he does it, but he has it and all. And it all started with used books. Used books and no taxes. <laughs> Thief. Um, and what happened is he uh, went to like a box office. Uh, he was in a city one day, and it was when they did Nickelodeon. So, you know, you walk mm-hmm. up, you put your money in the slot, you turn the crank, and you see, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. It's like a flip book. Yeah, you see some crap. Yeah, flip book. Basically. Yeah, real garbage. Real <laughs> primitive garbage. Yeah. Uh, if you pay 10 cents, maybe you got to see boobies. It's like, perhaps. Oh, perhaps. Uh, salacious. Very, mm. very pornographic stuff. The, the the downfall of civilization started there. <laughs> right there. It's right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he reportedly... Sp- and one day, not actually watching the movies and the Nickelodeons, but watching the patrons going in and out of the box office and like kind of counting them and calculating yeah. and being like, "Hey, yeah. you know what? Huh, this could this could be profitable. Good money in here." So he sold all his dry goods stuff and he bought a bunch of Nickelodeons. And uh, that's when he found out that he had to then, in order to get the, f- the movies to play in his Nickelodeons, he had to mostly go through a, a trust company. Okay, uh, the Motion Picture Trust Company, and the Motion Picture Trust Company had all the rights to all these things. So obviously, they got their cut yeah and then they also had the the patents to a lot of mechanisms that like were using cameras okay. and and in um uh exhibition stuff nickelodeon stuff right so pretty much anything you wanted to do as a theater operator you had to kick something up to, to the, these guys the motion picture <laughs> trust because uh, they were smart and they were like, fuck this, we're consolidating were, our power. We're consolidating everything. <laughs> we want a monopoly on everything, on distribution, production, everything. All of it. With all that in mind, early 1900s, Drew, who do you think was behind the Motion Picture Trust Company? Oh, man. I mean, probably one of the giant industrialists of the time. Who, who is the one who is all about uh, crushing his inventor enemies and patent enemies and making sure his... Uh... I mean, Edison? Yes. Really? Yes, that Edison. Mother- Fucker. Edison was the backer behind Ruthless, the motion dude. picture trust. Ruthless. Some yep. someone should make a, a fucking a real, true a to history real. a for real true to history movie about well, that motherfucker. Yeah. And in and in, in all reality he'd probably be the villain of the film. Yeah. <laughs> him, him as a bad guy. Exactly. He would be he would be so bad. But because of a lot of his jerkiness, yeah. uh he forced the hands of other people. Yeah. Like Carl Lamley. Okay. Who was like Fuck you, Edison, for uh, taking all my monies. Yeah. I want my monies. Uh, you know, this could be much more successful for me. So he started his own uh, picture company. Okay. All right. So that was the Yankee Film Company. This was in 1909. Uh, and the Yankee Film Company just made their own movies so they could show them at uh, Carl Lamley's own Nickelodeons. And all this stuff was happening not in Hollywood, not in L.A., but in New Jersey. That sounds about right. Edison's in Jersey. Yeah. Uh, everything was on the East Coast. Then. Everything was on the East Coast. Fort Lee, New Jersey. Um, and then one of the things that uh, uh, Lamley did with his Yankee film production that was different from Edison was he promoted the the people who were making the movies. So, like, on when you watched a movie, it would actually say on the screen who he was giving on-screen credits. Yeah. He was the first one to do that. Okay. He said, here are my actors. Here are the directors. These so are that, the people. So that, a, so that if you liked it, you could be like, oh, well. What else has that person? What else has that person done? Yes, if you exactly. see that name again, you you were instantly interested. Yeah, so that's the birth of the star studio, movie studio, mm-hmm. like movie stars and all that. Carl Lamley and Universal's, well, pre-Universal's oh. when he did that. So that's 1909. Uh, 1912, uh, Universal Film Manufacturing Company. That's when they started getting into the actual manufacturing of uh, of the the, the the equipment and the studio and all that. They tried to become a 
what are they called here? Uh, uh, a vertically integrated company, right? Yeah. Universal Film Manufacturing became incorporated, uh, joined that with the studio. It was all in-house. So then they had distribution, exhibition, and production all, yeah. all together. Uh, so that's pretty much the birth of Universal Studios, 1912. Uh, and then, this is I found this fascinating right here. By 1915... Uh, other people had opened up their other studios. So now, you know, Edison's Monopoly was yeah. destroyed. Other studios popped up. We'll talk about all those other studios later in other episodes. But unlike the other movie moguls of the time, uh, Lamley opened up the Universal Studios backlot to tourists. Oh, very nice. The, you you, you, you want to see how we do this? Yes. Pay me some money and I'll show you. It's the birth of the movie <laughs> studio theme park. And the tour. And the tour, the movie tour, mm-hmm. the studio tour. He uh, First he set up some bleachers, and for 25 cents he could sit down on the bleachers and, and watch, I guess watch whatever the a production going on. or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then later, I think in the 60s is when they added the trams, and they did a whole tram tour. Yeah. And then uh, the 80s is when they started envisioning Universal Studios Orlando or Florida, I should say. Yeah. And uh, they had like a, a tram-based attraction that got rid of in the 90s, all this stuff. I mean, that could be its own... I mean, yeah. It's its I own mean, episode, yeah, I think. You, the Universal theme park, yeah. I mean, it's been around for a while. For, for a while. <laughs> it's, it's been around? It doesn't really work. No, it doesn't. You, you really stretched that I one tried. thin. It's a bonus episode. I want to give them a little extra. <laughs> I want to work harder for them. Um, so that was kind of, you know, the birth of the whole idea of letting in the tourists. He was the first one to do it. Um, 1915 Universal City Studios opens up that's their so they had to have a, a studio lot to give the tours to they mm-hmm. opened a state-of-the-art gigantic lot it was like on some old farm and uh that was like the real beginning of the first like golden age of universal and they were making three types of movies they were making the low budget movies you know they're down and dirty little ones they're they're ambitious movies that are a little more higher budget like their big westerns no. and then their prestige pictures with people like john ford and stuff like that were, yes. were making these movies uh now here's something else that lamley did different that no one else was doing at the time that maybe did not work out in his favor. Uh, he did have a theater or two, but he didn't invest in a theater chain. Okay. Some of his contemporaries, like Marcus Lowe, Lowe's Theater still around, Marcus Lowe, some of his contemporaries were, were really focusing on theater chains. Yeah. He did not at all. No. Another thing, that's why there's no universal theater chain. Another thing, uh, no debt. He refused to take on debt to make anything. Oh. So that almost bankrupted him at times. Uh, yeah. The studio when he's like, well, we're going to work with the cash we have on hand. And if there's movies aren't making fails. the cash back. Yeah. Yep. So they came a couple of times uh, precipitously close to, to crashing. But then again, I mean, I mean, I guess that's the risk you take to make sure you don't take a loss. Right. I mean, how do you how do you insure against that loss? Ooh, we'll talk about that later <laughs> in, a, in a decade or two here. Um, in the 20s, Lon Chaney started working with them, and he made um, Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. Both of them were big hits, yeah. and then kind of started the precursor to the Universal Monster movie era, which really started in the 30s. Uh, we did a whole bonus episode on that. I think I wrote that down. Which we... And if I did, I'll look into it. Um... But then also something interesting happened. While those two movies were being made, this guy Irving Thalberg was a guy who was running the show. He was the head of production. He was making sure these are the movies we're making, greenlighting certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis B. Mayer from Mayer Goldwyn Mayer, the MGM uh, studio. Metro Golden Mayer. Thank you so much. Signed <laughs> him away. That's why you're the producer. Signed him away. Said, we give, we give you all the monies. Come here. We'll give you better pay. You can do whatever you want. Thalberg left. Universal Pictures, for the most part, they're then like, 
quality of movies went down because well, yeah, Thalberg yeah. was the guy. Yeah. Um, around the same time, 26, they opened up a Universal Studios like German division. Okay. Uh, didn't release that many movies through it, and then it had to get shut down in the late 30s because of the war, the war and Nazis and etc. <laughs> Um, but that's her first expansion into like Europe and trying yeah. to. Well, like, I mean, there out. was, I mean, there was definitely a film scene over there at the time. Absolutely, so. yes. Uh, <clears throat> and the movies that they started making after they lost World War One were mwah, fantastic. Mm. But then World War Two, the mm. propaganda. Um, now, in the late twenties, Carl Lamley was abiding by some sort of he wanted to do a clean picture policy. All his movies okay. up to a certain point where it had a certain standard family code. He didn't yes. want them to get down and dirty and too gruesome. But then he saw his competitors were making all the money yeah. with, with the schlocky films. So he's like, all right, well, let's start showing some go. cleavage. Here we go. So they abandoned that in the late 20s. Also, what happened in the late 20s, they came up with, uh, they had some animators. They hired some animators. And they had a guy who was this guy's name, Charles Mintz. Charles Mintz was the head of their brand new animation department. And he was working with this fella named Walt something. <laughs> Walt Disney. <laughs> I th you think maybe. And uh, they created and Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And they had some ideas. They had some ideas. And they're like, here's Oswald. Here's our flagship characters. This is going to be great. And then Charles Mintz... Um, he tried to lowball Disney and his partner for like everything. He mm -hmm. tried to, you know, yeah. get all, you know, obviously he's just doing his job. Disney's like, fuck you. I have my own idea. I'm going to go make my own studio. You can listen to our Disney episode <laughs> I did with Sam. Uh, that's a free episode people are going to hear. Uh, did I write down when that came out? I'll, I'll... Yes, April 5th of 2017, the mm -hmm. Disney movies episode. People can check that out. Uh, so. Universal had the rights to Oswald, forcing Disney to go off and create another character. Steamboat Mickey something, Willie. Steamboat something, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know if people ever heard of these things. <laughs> and that's why you got to listen to the bonus episode of the Disney movies. So you can learn all about these fascinating facts. And they kept up with Oswald cartoons. So there's actually a period of Oswald cartoons made by Universal that is theirs. And then another set of Oswald cartoons that Disney owned. And then in 2006... Uh, Universal at that time tr essentially traded Oswald, all those Oswald cartoons back to Disney mm -hmm. in return for the uh, what is it? <laughs> the contract rights to ABC sportscaster Al Michaels for football purposes. Okay. For TV football purposes. Well, I mean Disney does like to keep all of their property in-house. They wanted, they wanted as much of it as possible. <laughs> But since he was on ABC and the ABC and Disney bought ABC, yeah. uh, NBC was like, "We need that out, Michael. We need that out, Michael." I don't know why. <laughs> this is fucking out, Michael. Who gives a shit? Apparently, they did at the time. Apparently, they did. Apparently, they did. All right. Smash cut back to 1928. So we're still in the late 20s. Carl Lamley hires his son, Carl Lamley Jr., and it's the real beginning of uh, the nepotism era of Universal Studios. Probably part of the reason why it ends up going down in this form. It got to the point where so many nephews were hired at Universal that everyone was like, hey, hey, Uncle Carl. Hey, Uncle Carl. Oh, really? It was one of those. And that became his nickname. Uh, he became known as Uncle Carl because he had so many relatives working for him in at house. Universal in-house. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess he was making that money. He was making that money and uh, nepotism was a thing. He was also still wasn't necessarily, he wasn't doing any debt yet, right? But no. then his son comes along, Carl Lamley Jr. Mm -hmm. Okay, Now, Jr.'s responsible for kind of kicking off the... Um, the monster movie stuff. He did a lot of that. He also did uh, put some money into some Technicolor sequences, which was new mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, 
All Quiet on the Western Front. They adapted that in 1930. It won Best Picture that year. So he had some taste, uh, the junior. And uh, he's when it kicked off Dracula in 31, Frankenstein in 31. And uh, you can go back and listen to, we did this, Drew, back in October 29, 2014. Damn, that's a long time Monsters ago. Monsters episode. We did a Crespo Iso Film School episode called The Horror. The Horror. Um, so that's the 30s. We're at the 30s. Universal's doing pretty well with the Universal monsters. But then here comes the Depression, right? The Depression's happening in the 30s. Burr, burr, burr. Everyone's using all this money. And they're like, no, we're going to expand. We're going to make our studio bigger. I mean, I guess at the time it was probably a decent idea because, you know, in a Depression and a recession, if you already have money, you can get shit on the cheap. That, that's right. Uh, so what had happened was there's a movie called Showboat. Okay. Came out in 1936. They had actually made it in 1929, and it's a remake. Where in 1929 it was just a B movie. 1936, they were making it a, a high quality, like big budget version yeah. of that movie. The B movie version was a success. Mm-hmm. They're like, so if we throw more money in it, maybe it'll make us more money back. Maybe it'll be a bigger success. Um. So blah, 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 where's the, the good part here? Showboat was starting to go over budget. Mm-hmm. Universal was forced forced to finish this movie to seek a $750,000 loan mm, debt from yes their first time taking on debt from uh, Standard Capital Corporation mm. um, now their collateral for this three quarter million dollar loan was uh, controlling interests of the company <laughs> in its entirety well I mean fuck it this is when? 1930 something? 1935. 1935, trying to get a million dollars? Yep. Whoa. You got to stake your entire your stake in Dude, your I company. Dude, I mean, that's, that's a lot in of your, money. In at, your family company. Time. Yeah, it's a lot of money, yeah. but it's a lot on the line here. Uh, so, in the 26 year history, Universal's first debt, first loan, the production goes $300,000 over budget. Ooh. And movie comes out, it's a success. It's a critical and commercial success. It makes money, but not enough money. Oh. Standard calls in the loan immediately. Lambies can't pay it. Standard takes over. Done. Done. The Lambies are out. No more Uncle Carl. Uh-huh. Welcome. Uh, Cheever Cowden. Oh, boy. Oh, excuse me. I missed an initial. Standard Capitals. J. Cheever Cowden. That sounds like a real, uh, so, real artiste. So, so. Basically, this is a corporation taking over. Yes, corporate takeover because right. uh, an insurance company yeah. just mm-hmm. just took yep. it over. Uh, so from that company, someone takes over as president and chairman of the board. He obviously, what do these kind of companies do when they take over a company like this? Cut the fat. They cut the fat. Huge production budget cuts uh, to get rid of all the big movies, to get rid of all the big stars. And then they're just like, we're just going to make cheap movies and try to make some money. Now, remember, I mentioned the universal German component. Mm-hmm. Right. And this time it's being shut down yeah. because of you know, yeah, the fat. Nazis. Yeah, that too. Well, because of the Nazis. Yeah. That's why it's being shut down. Yeah, well, Nazis. But the thing is, the guy that was over there, this fellow Joe Pasternak, was actually fairly successful in what he was doing over there. If it wasn't this whole World War II thing, who knows what he could have done over there. Yeah. So, uh, standard, they call Pasternak. Like, come over here. We're shutting down Germany. You know, Nazism. We're shutting mm-hmm. that down. 
come on over here and and help run shit over here so he comes over to america by, and by this point you know obviously we skipped our effect that they moved to la this is all happening in california okay um he shows up and he starts making he focuses on like really light low budget musicals that feature young child actors think people like uh, shirley shirley mclean Shirley Temple? Shirley Temple. One of the Shirley's. <laughs> Shirley McLean was a child at one point. Shirley Temple. Shirley Temple type stuff, right? But not her. People yeah. like Gloria Jean, who was 13 years old, uh, was in movies like Destry, Rides Again, and shit like that. Very popular films for Universal. Very cheap. Got them through this uh, this period, along with the monster movies that they were still uh, making sequels to. So what happened in the 40s, they focused a lot on low-budget stuff and. At the time, they were called serials. Mm-hmm. We know them now as franchises. There we go. Right? So mm-hmm. uh, they were making things like a franchise called the Dead End Kids. Uh, little Tough Guys. These were like action features and serials that they were making mm-hmm. in, the, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, there was a series of movies based on a character called Baby Sandy. And it's just like, it's like a baby's day out type yeah. shit, you know? Um, and then, like, they focus on, like, the Will Ferrells of the day. You know, where they just keep making the same type of comedies over yeah. and over with their uh, people like Hugh Herbert, the Ritz Brothers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Westerns, things like that. Anything that was cheap. Anything that was cheap in genre that they could turn a buck on, yeah. that's what they were doing. Um, the Warriors, right? Things got lean. Throughout the 40s, they had to do some co-production arrangements. That's how they ended up getting a couple of prestige things going with, like, Alfred Hitchcock mm-hmm. and a few comedy successes with Ab- Abbott Costello. Because they were working for other companies, but they are like, shit, it's a war. We got to all work together yeah. to help just keep the industry going. Just to stay alive. Just to stay alive. So that's how some of that stuff happened. And then finally, in the late 40s, no, early 40s, excuse me, 1942, Universal became the final studio in L.A., in Hollywood, to sign a deal with Technicolor. Oh. for all of their movies to be in technical as opposed yeah. to just sequences here and there mm-hmm. like now we'll finally do it we'll finally every, make... every now all movies are in color yes and at that point uh, the technicolor three strip process had already been around for maybe 20 25 years and was already getting ready to be taken over by something else within another decade yeah. so they got in on technicolor right at right at, at the, the end. very end it's like what well they're if... trying to save that money though it is but it's it's close to like what if now for our six year of podcasting we decide to put out episodes of our show on cd for people like we're finally doing it guys yes <laughs> we're pressing cds for you anyway no do you press cds is that the way it works it's been so long i can't, <laughs> I can't remember it's been so but you long. press vinyl is that you, you burn cds yes there you go we are gonna burn some vinyl for you guys <laughs> set a bunch of records on fire mid 40s drew it's time for a takeover Okay. All right. It's standard. They've been around doing their thing. They're just they're an insurance company. They're just, yeah, no, exactly. They, they are doing conservative business mm-hmm. to make sure the company is still profitable. So uh, this guy, J. Arthur Rank, is a British fellow. That's why it's J. Arthur Rank. I'm a British man coming in here to America. I'm interested in your picture business, your moving <laughs> pictures. And uh, he did a four-way merger. So it was him, Universal, another company called International Pictures. And uh, that's him. Universal, International Pictures. Was there someone else? You said four. It, it is. It says here it's a merger, but then it's three. Three. Mm. Um, yeah. But then uh, they form United World Pictures. Okay. United World Pictures is an immediate failure. Boom. Right away. They don't know what they're doing. It, it, it sucks. But Rank is like, oh, I'm so interested in these pictures. I don't want to go away. I'm going to go back to England. It's It's been bombed to nothing. Here in America, it's quite nice. Sony, LA. Uh, <laughs> 
so he stays interested in Universal. He works with Universal, keeps his money involved, and they reorganize as Universal International. So if you watch Universal movies from like the late 40s through the 50s, it has a black and white opening usually that says uh, Universal International yeah. is the name of the studio at that time. This was 1946. Um, and then he is the one who decides to bring back... Let's. Uh, I'm going to bring back English uh, prestige. We're going to make ambitious films that are going to win awards. Really, really, it's going to be fantastic. And um, of course, it's a failure. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's he's just an Englishman. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, But one of the things that they did do that was very interesting and is a a huge precursor to uh, what we were just joking about, as a matter of fact, uh, he struck a deal with... um, Castle Films. Castle Films is a home movie dealer. So what they did was they put together clip packages or best ofs of whatever they were making, mm-hmm. gave it to Castle Films. Castle Films would then sell that to home movie enthusiasts, people who had setups at their oh, houses. Like a, a, a real. A reels no. and, and projects, projectors. Uh, so it's like essentially the first home video distribution of, of like licensed material. It's yeah. done through Castle Films. And this started in uh, 1947. Universal straight up bought the company in 1951. No, there we go. Apparently it was uh, success enough. Yeah, they're like, we like this. Um, mm, chewy ice. ice get an iced coffee. Let's see, your late 40s. Uh Again, uh, J. Arthur's uh, his prestige approach while giving us a couple of good movies like uh, Lawrence Levy did Hamlet, David Lean did uh, Great Expectations. A couple of those are successes, but mostly it's a bunch of flops. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so then they, they change production heads, they change approaches, they go back to low budget, they go back to B movies. That's when we get Abnica selling me Frankenstein and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then... Uh, and, but it's still not all necessarily working. So Rank, by this point, is like, you know what? I'm going to go back to England. It's much... It's, uh, they've, they've fixed the buildings and... and I'm it's not, not bombed to shit anymore. It's not bombed to shit and I don't lose money when I live there. So I'm going to go back to England. So he sold all his shares. He got okay. the, he got the fuck he out of Universal. This was in 1952. And he sold it to this fellow, Milton Rackmill, who was in charge of Decca Records. Okay. Decca Records took control of Universal in 1952. So now 1952 goes from being Universal International, run by this English fella, to now it's run by another company, a record company. Uh, they had some success. Uh, they just, again, B-movies, relying on series. This uh, movie called Arabian Nights, which came out in 1942. Their first full Technicolor movie was a big success. So by this point, Decca is just like, well, just keep making these Arabian Nights. Arabian Nights part two, three, three four, four five. twelve. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, you know, again, it's a mixture of hits and misses. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, pretty interesting here. One thing that they did, another thing that Universal sort of set a, a standard for, uh, they were working with this fella named uh, James Stewart, a.k.a. Jimmy Stewart. And he was very popular, mm-hmm. actor, obviously, at the yeah. time. And he was represented by MCA. And his agent was a gentleman named Lou Wasserman. And Lou Wasserman fought for a three-picture deal for Jimmy Stewart. And mm-hmm. part of that three-picture deal drew first time ever for an actor back end points Ooh. how much money is this movie gonna make all right well it's gonna affect my pay yeah because if it's a, if it's a success i want more of that money i want that money a three picture deal picture number one doesn't do so well so it doesn't really pay off for jimmy stewart picture yeah. number two it's a hit jimmy gets paid well, 
That's the beginning of the uh, big actors commanding bigger back, getting part, part yeah. profit sharing. Yeah, exactly. Which I'm cool with. That's very. Uh, I, I think there was a Winchester '73, which came out in 1950. Is the one that was the uh, the big hit. Now, uh, his agent was uh, Lou Asman. Lou Asman working for MCA. MCA is a big uh, agency at the time, and as a matter of fact, they're so big, they decided they want to take over. So in the early 50s, Universal had its own production company in France. In the late 60s, they also had uh, another production company in Paris, Universal Productions France, SA. And a lot of people were involved in that. And then by the 50s, uh, Music Corporation of America, World's Artist Talent Agency, became a television producer. They're like, we have this huge TV production facility here. Uh, we want to get into making uh, films. Not necessarily. They graduated that way. Like we want to okay. get into making bigger TV shows. We want to get into more prestige. Yeah. But we need a better facility. Are we going to build our own facility? You know, Universal. They have this giant studio over here, and it's only going to cost us X amount of dollars. And they're spreading themselves thin with all this Paris stuff, mm. and they don't know what they're doing. These guys, those Decca Records, they're a bunch of idiots. So uh, they essentially. Rented space, rented slash bought the studio. Okay. This just the studio space yeah. itself, um, and then they renovated, they updated everything because by that point it was an older studio, so they boosted everything up, pumped a bunch of money into it, so it ended up being a great deal for everyone involved. And then Universal also got to make movies with MCA talent because no. MCA is already there. No, uh, and with all their newfangled equipment, yes, that they just bought. That's a big reason. Yes, exactly. So they get to use their new equipment, MCA equipment, and they get to use MCA talent like Alfred Hitchcock. That's, again, how they got to work with... Universal never worked with Hitchcock directly, it seems. They only worked with them through, like, other studios. Yeah. But yet, some of their biggest movies have been Hitchcock movies, like, oh, and, and the birds and stuff yeah. like that. Um, so they're working there. They work in the studio. They renovated. They're giving them talent. It was only a matter of time before this gigantic talent agency slash TV production company becomes a slash... Movie production company. Yeah. And how do they do that? By just taking over Universal Studios. Uh, they buy the fucker in 1962 and revert the name back from Universal International to Universal Pictures, which is still pretty much how it's known as a name, right? Um, I guess it's still just Universal now. Yeah. Actually, no, now it's... I was about to say. <laughs> I mean, it was, but when you watch a movie, don't you see the logo pop up? It yeah, says it's still Uni- Universal It Pictures. just says Universal. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It right? does. Yeah, just but it changes over the years. Um, so in '64, they formed Universal City Studios, which was a merging of their TV production side with the their newly acquired motion uh, motion picture side. And this makes Universal like like the glory days, the early golden years when Lamley first started. And they were breaking away from the Edison Trust, and mm-hmm. they were just making money and really paving the way. This is like the first time since then that they've really been like a huge player again in the 60s. And it's thanks to all that MCA money coming in. And then true to form Universal style, just like with the getting into Technicolor and all that, um, they invest all this money into the studio system like about a decade before the studio system collapses <laughs> and becomes this whole other thing. But anyway, for a while there, they were really killing it. Uh around this time since MCA is also doing TV focusing on TV they strike their first deal with NBC uh-huh. so that's the beginning of the NBC Universal uh, relationship yeah. which obviously now and is then, uh, yeah. very yeah. not yeah. going anywhere <laughs> um, around this time NBC 
TV with Universal behind them. They make a big innovation. Again, another innovation done through Universal. This is the made-for-TV movie. Ah. Yes. That really got popular. Very popular. <laughs> they started doing it in the 60s. Okay. 70s into the 80s. Forget about it. Yeah. Uh, Universal's probably best straight-to-TV movie was made by one of their wonderkins, the Universal wonderkins, Steven... How do you say this? Spielberg uh, made a movie called Duel, and it was a made-for-TV movie, and it may, may be one of the best made-for-TV movies ever. Well, it's made by Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, so. I think that's how you say it. I've only seen it written down. I've never, yeah, never, never ne- heard it said out loud. And, um, yeah, so they're, they're the ones responsible for all the good and bad that is. <laughs> Thank you, Lifetime. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Universal, mm-hmm. for the existence of Lifetime movies. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, pretty much. They, I mean, they took that and just ran with it. Someone had to, Someone had to do it. Uh, 60s, 70s, pretty boring. Um, just you know, making their movies, the doing their thing, nothing too spectacular. Uh, they didn't do True Grit, but they did the sequel to True Grit, Rusty Cogburn. Okay, that type of thing. See, Rusty yeah. Cogburn, see, there you go, Jester. Yeah. Um, in the early 70s, they did team up with Paramount. Okay, and they did have a long, this is one of their many uh, partnerships throughout the years, and they worked together to make Cinema International Corporation, and through the CIC, they helped co-produce or produce uh, some uh, tiny little movies like The Sting, American Graffiti, Earthquake, uh, and then the movie that really helped Universal in the 70s during the little more fallow period here, uh, Jaws. Mm. Again, again back, yeah. to, back to Spielberg. Um, but while all these movies were being made, Universal was kind of considered more of a TV production company. Okay. Again, throughout the 60s and 70s, yeah. they were really just like, that's where our bread and butter is at. But while they were doing that, um, they struck this deal with Spielberg, let him uh, house his Amblin production company on the studio lot, where they pretty oh. much just gave him a space. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, you can have your offices over here, hey, do whatever you want, just let us know when you're using the space. And <laughs> uh, give us first, uh, give us first dibs. Yeah. That's all I want. Just give us first dibs on, on what you're doing to, to give us a chance to give us to produce it. No. We want to pass, it, we'll pass, but they very, very rarely, I don't think they ever pass. How do you pass on Steven Spielberg? He does still find some trouble getting some movies made. Uh, he's for years has been trying to get Robopocalypse made for some reason. I don't know why they can't give him the movie, make a giant robot movie when to make, give it to everyone else. Every, yeah, exactly. But he's I'm struggling to get Robopocalypse made. Probably because he has some weird idea about how it's like, well, the robo, the kid, it's gonna be piloted by a kid who has a divorced parent, and he's sad the whole time. <laughs> like all those other movies, like all those other movies, and everyone who, who he inspires. Um, so he sets up an ambulance, sets up a Universal. So that's how Universal gets E.T., uh, Back to the Future, An American Tale, Land Before Time, Field of Dreams, Jurassic Park. I mean, all this yeah. stuff is all Amblin. Mm-hmm. Also around that time, then. Um, they think of Universal Studios in 1982. It stalls out for a bit in 1986. They hook up with Spielberg, and Spielberg's like, I have ideas. So he he designed E.T. Ride, helped design it. And of course, I mean, a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, he came up with so many, like, really hands-on for that first iteration of the Universal Park. Um, all right, time for some. A series of corporate regime changes and takeovers, <laughs> and it gets wild. It's crazy how these huge companies just pass around this other smaller but still huge company. It's yeah. like... This is the thing. It's the way it's it's big business, man. It's wild. It's a little staggering. But in 1990, a company called uh, Matsushita Electric Mm -hmm. buys Universal. Just straight up. Straight up buys it. (laughs) It's like, we want these profits. Um, For $6.6 billion. Actually, (gasps) actually they bought MCA is what they did. Okay. They bought MCA, but still. Yeah. 
that so they bought the thing that was bigger. Yeah. They bought the bigger beast of <laughs> Universal, right? <clears throat> uh nineteen ninety, six point six billion dollars and uh Matsushita Electric uh would then very shortly thereafter be known as Panasonic. Ah so Panasonic briefly owned owned Universal. Well they owned MCA which owned Universal. Um correct. Now nineteen ninety five. They sold an 80% stake of their MCA slash Universal shares to, this is wild, Seagram's. Really? Yes, the Canadian drink distributor, Seagram's, wow. bought it for 80% of it for $5.7 billion. Um, what had happened at this point, Seagram's wanted to get into the entertainment industry for some reason. Well, I'm sure, well, also so they could probably drop their product into all of these movies. Makes product placement very easy, right? Yeah, yeah there you go. Um, all of a sudden... Everybody's uh, drinking ginger ale. All of a sudden, yeah. In, in, uh, <laughs> Seven in and Seven. Lost World Jurassic Park. Oh, that's why uh, Mal- Malcolm was always drinking Seagram. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, it makes sense. They sold off their shares in DuPont. Okay. Which is crazy, because DuPont's just like been around forever. Yeah. Solid chemical plastics manufacturing company they're never going to go away as long as the earth is a, a terrible place to live with humans mm-hmm. on it and they sold that thinking entertainment was a better way to go okay uh bad idea mm-hmm. obviously a bad idea they they found it to be uh uh not a good idea and they got out of it let me see where did they get out of it here oh they sold first the tv holdings to a fellow named barry diller Barry Diller is pretty much known as the guy who like built up USA TV, okay, and uh, really did a lot for for the TV side of Universal at this point. And then in June two thousand, they sold uh, Seagram themselves was sold to Vivendi. All right, so Seagram. How do I know that name? Because Vivendi. Vivendi is a French water utility and a media company. Okay. So like Seagram's was like, we, we do beverages and media. They're but like, Vendi was like, we do beverages and media. <laughs> we do water and media. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, but Vendi owns Studio Canal. Ah, there we go. Okay. And Canal Plus. And Canal Plus. So in the early 2000s then, um, when you see references to Universal, they are called Universal Vivendi mm. at that time. Um, so that's how Seagram got out of the uh, entertainment industry. Got out of the entertainment industry there. Yeah. Now, uh, Vivendi was burdened with debt. No. <laughs> so in 2004, they sold 80% of their universal entertainment to General Electric. Back to Edison. Yes, back to Edison. <laughs> General Electric being a parent company of NBC. Right. Uh, so that's, that's really funny how it started off as direct competition mm. with Edison. And then at how many... How, how many years later? From, fucking... from 1912 <laughs> to 2004. So just shy of... They a... were in strict competition with Edison and then swallowed by them. <laughs> Edison always wins. The, the Edison, Edison beast is too large. Edison always wins. <laughs> um, since GE owns NBC, that's when it becomes NBC Universal. Universal, yeah. Okay. Uh... At that point, then, they just sold part of it, and then a few years later, they sold the rest. So they're just like, it took a couple of staggered sales, but they ended up selling it all to, to GE. 2005-2009. Paramount Pictures acquires DreamWorks SKG. The S stands for Spielberg. The K stands for Katzenberg. The G stands for Geffen, David Geffen. Uh, it started as, uh, I think I think it started 
DreamWorks started with Universal because it was Spielberg. Yeah. But then it ended up with Paramount. Um, and then Universal's chairperson at that time, Stacy Snyder, left to go head up DreamWorks at that time. Uh, a lot of turmoil within DreamWorks. So it was just in the 2000s marked by a lot of... Um, just think of Universal's the, the the Hulk. Think of Hulk. That movie Hulk. Yeah, a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, that just, that, that tells everything okay. you need to know about Universal <laughs> in the two thousand turn period. GE purchased Vivendi's final share in NBC Universal in twenty eleven. GE then sold fifty one percent of the company in twenty eleven. Does it say for how much? It doesn't say. Two podcast. Mm. current owner of Universal. We have mm. we are now caught up to current day. March 2013, Comcast bought the remaining 49% of NBC Universal. Here we go for $16.7 billion. Okay, and that that was just the 49%. Well, that was the last half, so double it then. No. A little over $30 billion, right? Comcast now owns that. Uh, then all these notes here at the end, just a bunch of all the little deals, all these little management deals they have. Um, in 2015... Uh, Amblin renewed uh, their deal, so they have renewed a five-year deal with Universal at that time. So that kept going. Still there, still there. This is interesting. In 2016, back to DreamWorks, mm-hmm. they announced a 3.8 billion dollar deal to buy DreamWorks Animation in 2016. But however, that wouldn't kick in until 2019. Uh, Universal will take over a distribution deal with DreamWorks starting in 2019, starting with the release of How to Train Your Dragon, colon, The Hidden World. Well, I just saw, I just just saw a trailer, trailer for that. Yeah, there you go. So uh, up until this point, it was, these movies were distributed by Fox. They were done through, uh, what does it say, Paramount? They were done through Paramount. Yeah. Viacom's Paramount. So they're, they're, they were Viacom. Now it's Comcast. Uh, blah, 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 blah. and then uh, oh yeah this is interesting in April 2017 Universal acquired a minority stake in Amblin so they actually like put money into Amblin and bought it so oh, so, so they, more than just like having the just ons- having them there and you know kind of using them around and this that the other like you know what now they actually infuse you know, a little bit of money into it <clears throat> you know what we're finally just gonna fucking do this guys yeah we made, <laughs> we made a straight up buy you now after all these decades yeah. but then again Spielberg and Amblin together, they have survived four takeovers of the company. Yeah. Being there the whole time, yeah. that's that's a hell of a staying power. There, well, actually. I mean, Am- it, Steven, obviously Steven Spielberg found a nice spot and decided to stay there. He was like, you know what, this works for he me. He did. <laughs> he did. <laughs> that, this works. Don't. We're cool, man. We got to do a whole. You got to do a whole Spielberg episode. I mean, yeah, we got to do it eventually. Well, that was the history of Universal. A lot of, a lot of takeovers, a lot yeah. of bad decisions, good decisions, bad decisions, accidentally setting different precedents. You mm-hmm. know, you know, very starting off in direct competition with Edison and then getting bought by GE. Very uh, so many decades later, that's the, hilarious. The best ending of the episode for sure, right there. The best way to end it is that <laughs> is that beautiful circle of like, oh, Carl Landley. <laughs> Damn it, Edison wins. Yeah. Edison still wins. <laughs> Um, all right, well, then I guess there you go. We get, we're going to have to do... So we already did a Disney one. People can go back and find it. And then... Well, I did one with Sam. And then that's a free one. We did this. So that leaves mm-hmm. Paramount, Fox. I said I said these already. Warner Brothers. And Columbia. That's one with the lady holding yeah. the torch. Yes. 
Well, it's Columbia Tristar. Yes, it is. There you go. It is Columbia Tristar. It was the lady and then the Pegasus afterwards. So we'll talk about the history of the lady and the Pegasus. That'll be the name of that episode. It won't say Columbia. It'll say the history of the lady and the Pegasus. All right. I guess that's it. All right. Thanks, people. Thank you, Drew. Welcome. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, patrons. Peace. PFT Media Production.